You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord Jesus, we're grateful that you've brought us together this morning and have already, in your kindness, fed us with your word and, Lord, in the sacraments. And I pray that as we enter into this time together that you would strengthen us and encourage us in your word, that you'd gather us as uh, around you, O Lord, and your promise to be with those who turn to you. And I pray that the Psalms today that we engage will help us navigate that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I feel a little silly that the, the title of... I didn't know that we'd be going into a challenging season in the life of our church. I wouldn't have titled this springtime in the Psalms. It seems a little... Um, uh, so I'm, I'm conscious of that as I've thought through it. Um, I'm not good at titles, and so this is definitely a bad one. Um, but I, 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 you know, I'm aware of, this, of the scenario that we are in, um, and of course we're all thinking very much about it. And this, this is, uh, over the next few weeks, I'm just going to take you through the psalms that the Lord's taking me through. I mean, that's just my plan, um, to kind of think through some of these psalms and the way in which I think the Lord is encouraging me through them. I want to kind of kind of as as I can pass that on to you as well Um, so today's psalm and I'm going to close the story today's psalm is psalm 25 if you have a a phone or something oh sorry y'all I'm afraid the COVID seats are the only one left up here. Um, Psalm, let me read Psalm 25 to you. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame, and they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever to the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me, O Lord, and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all of my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for... 
And here's a theme that you know runs throughout all the Psalms. For I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all of his troubles. So Psalm 25 is a psalm that's nestled right in what you would consider, or at least identify, as book one of the Psalter. And some of you have taken classes with me before that will not be new language to you. Um, if you've ever noticed that the Psalms are structured in a five-book structure in such a way that you have Psalms 1 through 41 is book 1, and then 42 through 72 is book 2, then 73 through 89 is book 3, and then you have book 4, 90 through 106, I believe, and then book 5 is 107 to 150. So a five-book structure that's meant, I think, to mirror, to be a kind of impression um, a similitude of, of the Pentateuch itself, so that we know that the Psalms exist not just as, and I'm, I'm not saying that they're not this, but not merely as human words addressed to God, but it's also God's instruction, it's his Torah, it's his law toward you and to me, giving us a kind of grammar that we need to speak with him in all of the vicissitudes and complexities of life. So the metaphor that I've used, and some of you have heard this before, the metaphor that I use with the Psalms are um, that they exist like garments in a closet waiting for you to put them on in the moments of your life where you need to put that particular Psalm on. So when you're in a moment of lamentation and you are disoriented and up is down and down is up and God is not, like the book of Job, acting in accord with what you've considered to be his normal pattern with you, there are Psalms waiting for you like Psalm 13 like Psalm 73, like Psalm, and the list goes on. Lots of those kinds of Psalms, by the way. Interestingly enough, the whole of the book of Psalms is referred to in, as praises, tehillim in Hebrew, and yet, if you begin to kind of quantify them by some analysis, there, there are more lament Psalms, disorientation Psalms, in the book of Psalms than any other kind. I think that says something about the nature of our Christian lives as pilgrimages on their way to something else. Um, so, there are psalms that are ready for us to put on in the particular moments that we have. And book one of the Psalter are heavily saturated Davidic psalms. Um, there's, a, there's a heavy Davidic character to the psalms that becomes, hey Brooke, I'm going to move back here, that become um, complicated or problematized for us as we move through the Psalms. So lots of David's Psalms, Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after you, O God. These are all the sort of David shepherding kind of Psalms. Just think two, two Psalms before Psalm 25, we have Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. So you have all this Davidic character that's in book one of the Psalter, that by time you get to the end of book two, as it seems into book three, something's, the, the train seems to have gone off track. Psalm 72, uh, the last verse of Psalm 72 before book 3 says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, have ended, period. Then you're into book 3, and you're like, well, how did we get there, and what does that mean? So I think, again, not, I don't want to chase this rabbit too far, but the significance of this is these Davidic Psalms and the promise that God has given to his people through his servant David will become problematized will lead to a disorientation among the people of God. And we know that historically has to do with their exile. When they are exiled into Babylon, away from the land, and there is no king, Davidic king, on the throne anymore, that's, in effect, book three of the Psalms' existence shaped for Israel in their own history. 
So here we are in Psalm 25, still in that heavily Davidic flavor of the Psalter. And Psalm 25, it's interesting, and you can't quite see this in English, but in the Hebrew, it's an acrostic. Um, it's like, does it, do any of you, a little quiz here, any of you remember another psalm uh, in the psalms that's an acrostic? It's really, really, really long. Uh, psalm 119, right? So you have Aleph, Beit, Gimel, A, B, C, all the way through. And Psalm 25 is an acrostic as well. Um, it's, it's, and, and there's a sense in which there are times when you look closely that the language of the psalm is such that it seems forced on us. And the reason why it's forced is because the psalmist is working really hard to make this acrostic thing work. You've tried this before. I got A, I got B, I'm down to X. Ooh, I'm not sure what to do there. I'll force this. You have a feeling of this. And there's also a sense when you look closely at Psalm 25 that as an acrostic, it's not complete. In other words, the form of the psalm itself, I think, lends or says something about the actual substance of what the psalm is talking about. It's not a nice and tidy A line, B line, C, D, E, F, G. It goes like A, B, C, D. Something goes off the track there, H, I, J, that's not quite right, K, L, M, all the way through. And it seems as if you're kind of going along Psalm 25, expecting a certain form, and you hit bumps in the road all the way along. That's not right, that's not right, which is how you feel with this psalm. This psalm is life going down the road, and then that doesn't quite, I expect a G on this line, and I didn't get it. I expect an S on this line, and it's not there. So the actual form of the psalm in its, in its given language is telling us something about the character of what you're entering into in this psalm and what it's forcing you to come to terms with, with what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So I'd like to just work through this with you, make some comments, kind of a running commentary on it as we work through Psalm 25, and then I'll make some final reflections, and if we have time, I'm happy to take some Q&A. So uh, verses, uh, verse 1. Um, <laughs> We'll, we'll see how far we get. Uh, verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Now, this is interesting, right? We're already stopping. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Uh, the, the term here for soul, and I don't, I don't want to get overly pedantic, but I think this is important. The term here for soul in the Old Testament is an interesting one. It's, um, the Hebrew term is nefesh. If you were to look it up in a dictionary... Um, nefesh, you would see these words that would appear in the dictionary. Soul, life, neck, um, gullet. That was kind of a fun one to read. Um, so you actually have the nefesh being attached figuratively to the neck itself. Breath. In other words, the soul in the Old Testament is the animating force that makes your body come alive. It's, it's before Adam, Adam's formed in clay, and God breathes into him and animates him in such a way that now he is, you remember the language of Genesis, a living soul. It's this language of the nephesh. It's that which actually gives us our being. Without it, we don't exist in our material form. We turn back to dust. So in effect, what you're, you have the psalmist saying here is that he lifts his soul, that which animates his very life, that which gives him his being, and he's lifting it back to the Lord in recognition that his very being comes from the Lord and is returned back to the Lord. 
Um, we just did this together in church. This is the language that we pray together, at least historically, every other Sunday in some service here when we enter into our Eucharistic prayers to you the, the, together. The Sursum Corda. Lift up your hearts, right? We lift them up unto the Lord. I, I was reading a little bit that, that fancy term there is the Sursum Corda. Now we lift up our hearts. It's an, it's, an act, it's an act corporately and individually of recognizing that everything that we are has its dependence on God and God alone. It's a complete turning and yielding to Him individually and corporately as God's people. We do not have the resources in ourselves to make our necks, our breath, work. Everything is dependent on Him. And the psalm starts right out of the gate with a clear understanding of what the overarching theme of the psalm is going to be. We are dependent on the Lord and the Lord alone for guidance and direction in the middle of this pilgrim existence that we're called to live into. You know, I, and many of you are familiar with this, liturgy stuff got really funny in the Reformation period. A lot, a lot of debates about these sort of things, um, you know, the Anglican tradition in England went its own direction, trying to preserve certain elements of the Catholic tradition within its own Protestant formulations. Um, I'm a, I like Calvin a lot. You know, I've, I've, I joke about it, but I, I'm, I'm a big fan of Calvin. Calvin in Switzerland and Geneva, they kind of went a completely different direction. They, they, their, their prayers didn't quite look like medieval prayers anymore, like ours still kind of do. And so Calvin went his own direction. So all to say... In the 16th and 17th century in Reformation Europe, it was kind of the liturgical wild, wild west. But do you know what one element you will find in every Reformation liturgy, whether it's Calvin or Zwingli or Luther or Cranmer, every single one of them have the Sursum Corda. Oh Lord, we lift up our hearts. We lift them up unto you. This, is, this verse right here is constitutive of what it means to be a believer, a recognition that everything that we have and everything that we are, our very animating bodies depend for their very existence on the Lord. They come from Him and we return them back to Him. Sursum Corda. Years ago, and I don't follow this practice, I wish I did, but years ago I remember hearing someone say something like, the Sursum Corda is a good way to begin every day of your life. Eyes open, I lift my heart up unto you, O Lord. <coughs> We raise, our, our, we raise our very souls and beings to you, recognizing that whatever happens in this day, we rely in, uh, in its totality on you and you alone. So the psalmist is very clear here. In the middle of his anguish, and we're going to see some serious anguish here, that everything resides on the Lord and the Lord alone. Now, this is what I love about Psalm 25, verses 1, 2, and 3. And I debated not even going past verses 1, 2, and 3 today, but we're going to go, we, we will. But, but think about what happens here. Verse 1 lays out for us the Sursum Corda, the very foundation of our existence and what it means to live life before God. We lift our very souls unto you, our very lives unto you. And I love this because verses 2 and 3 remove us from a kind of abstract thing. And we live in a world with a lot of abstract religious language. People know how to use the language of religion and slide it into all kinds of discourse, political, ideological, Christian stuff, churchly stuff. We use religious language easily, and it can be very abstract. And then when you press it just a little bit to say, okay, those are words that you and I are sharing together. What, what, do, you, what do you mean by that? Right? How, how do you understand that? And then all of a sudden, when you start pressing into those woods, things can become rather either confusing or disorienting. Um, 
the psalmist here is letting you know the content of what verse 1 is all about. What does it mean to lift up your soul unto the Lord? Well, I'm going to exposit that for you. I'm going to extrapolate that for you in verses 2 and 3. So this is what a life, a nephesh, a soul that's lifted up to the Lord looks like in concrete reality. Verses 2 and 3. O God, in you I trust. Confidence is this term trust here. Confidence in God's saving power. So to lift up our soul unto the Lord is to do so in an act of trust and confidence that, our, that God's saving activity, that His saving power rests with Him and Him alone, and that there is a trust and a faithfulness that, that elicits and yields from that confession. So I, I put my trust in you, O God, and here's the response. Don't let me be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Now, this is interesting because in this psalm, David is going to go back and forth. He's going to go back and forth from this direct address to God, asking God to forgive him, asking God to guide him. All of this kind of language that the psalmist is going to use again and again but interspersed throughout the whole Psalter from beginning to end is the psalmist David saying, don't let me be put to shame. Don't, don't give my enemies triumph over me. Don't let your own name, O God, be sullied because of the gloating of my enemies. And this is interesting, I think, because rarely in the Psalms, and this is Psalm language. You hear this all the time, David saying, if you, if you don't come to my rescue... My enemies are going to exult over me and you. Because, God, you're kind of wrapped up in this thing with me. So you have that language that's happening through all the Psalms. And this is what I find so fascinating. Rarely do we actually know who and what the enemies are. Now, now we can kind of go to Samuel and put together some narratives and figure out, oh, yeah, I remember that episode in his life when his, his own son was giving him problems. And, or Joab, the general. I mean, that guy was kind of dastardly. Or, I mean, we, we can figure out some issues in David's life where he had problems, and the man had problems. But the psalmist itself, or the psalms themselves, rarely overly define what these enemies are, and I believe that's part of their poetic intention. In other words, David had his enemies, and if we were having, you know, you know a beer with David on the porch, he'd probably tell you about some of them. But in the Psalms, he leaves it abstract enough knowing that you will have to fill in the blanks in your own story, right? And the enemies are a moving target. And I think we recognize, again, from a larger biblical perspective, that it's probably wise for us to think of our enemies primarily in that classic triad that the church and the Bible has given us, namely, ourselves, <laughs> the devil, right, and the world. And think about that. Our own flesh wages war against us. We know that. We know what it is to be inconsistent. We know what it is to be inconstant in our faith and faithfulness. We all live into that in a perpetual mode of self-recognition. I imagine, if you're anything like me, why can't I get my act together? I mean, these are the kind of questions I think we raise. And I thought by the time I was 45, I'd have it figured out. Well, you know, I'll send you a postcard next year. We'll see. Um, so I recognize that the battle of the flesh, and this is a very adventy thing to say, the recognition that we are sinners and righteous at the same time is at the very core of our being till the day we breathe our last. So we know that we, rec we, we wrestle with ourselves, our flesh. Um, 
I'm a dad of teenage boys, um, and uh, you know it's a, a challenge. Um, but I recognize that, especially with one of them in particular, I won't name them, but with one of them in particular, the default mode in a crisis or a failure is to blame. I mean, he can talk to me. I mean, uh, I got this report from your teacher that you got a zero on that. Well, she, you know, she, she, she wasn't clear on what the, the, the assignment was supposed to be. Okay. Um, and, and the list goes on and on and on. And it's a hard thing, I think, for, and I'm, I don't have my own issues, to recognize that the first stop in the kind of blame game is to kind of turn the guns inwardly. Um, recognizing that we can deceive ourselves so easily. And we can also soothe ourselves falsely very easily. We are given to do that. So I'm not quite, I mean, this is not a popular thing to say within the remit of our culture today, but we are our worst enemies. So we're kind of a remarkable thing. We live, remember the old movie Sleeping with the Enemy? You do every night, right? Um, because you're sleeping with you. Um, so that there's a recognition about the enemy being within our own selves. And yet we also recognize that the devil and the world are at work too. Um, I'll say this as, as a kind of just illustrative because we've been talking about it as a family. One, one of our children goes to a Roman Catholic school, John Carroll here. Um, if anything, I would say, um, I think him being in that world, I, don't, I hate that I'm being recorded here, but um, has, has made him more robustly Protestant. It's kind of interesting. Uh, it's like that whole adoration of the sacrament thing. I, this, is, this is my 16-year-old's theologically educated response. That's weird. Um, you know, so I mean, so I, I, he's become much more robustly Protestant. But you know, one of the things that I think I appreciate about the Roman Catholic tradition, my wife, who's done some subbing over at, at the school as well, has seen this kind of, you know, with her own eyes. They take the devil seriously. The devils that work. I mean, there, there are teachers that will walk around that school and pray the devil out of it with some regularity. Um, and, I, and as I've, I've heard Naomi sort of explain some of these things to me, I'm like, you know, I, I recognize that left on autopilot, I can be amazingly materialistic in my view of the world. In other words, that the material world that we have around us, that that's really kind of the sum total of, of reality. In other words, I, of course, I believe in God and the future heavenly kingdom, but, but principalities and powers, forces in the world that we might identify with figures or institutions or groups, and yet recognizing that the evil one is at work in his subtle and malevolent ways, um, that is an enemy for us to recognize it exists, and, and the enemy is insidious in his approach to undermine so many things within God's world and for God's people and for the world at large. And then, of course, the world itself, the, the, principal, the, the world. Now, you know, I come from a fundamentalist background, and I'm sure I've overreacted. You know, I've joked with you all before that I've you know, spent 22 years in real fundamentalism, and I'm, gonna, you know, I'm a recovering fundamentalist to the day I die. But one of the things that I appreciate, frankly, about my fundamentalist upbringing is a genuine recognition that the world and the world's principles are not in accord with God's. There, is, there are differences. And this requires something like Psalm 25. You're going to see where the psalmist goes here. It requires something like Psalm 25, a humble and penitent heart to ask God to teach us 
We need to be taught because we are being shaped. This is one thing that Zach Hicks is so good about. We are being shaped by liturgies that we are not even aware of. And, and, and the ways in which we go about our lives, when we flip on the channel, when we go about the day, our world, we are being shaped by forces in our world, in the cosmos that we are not even aware of. And it requires psalm-like reflection. It requires psalm-like humility, which you're going to see the psalmist say here in a few seconds, that we need to be taught your way. Because I know if left on autopilot, I will go my own way. Like Dante, you know, so many years ago, wake up in a dark wood and not know how I even arrived here. How, how did I, middle life, arrive here in a dark wood? And the psalmist, I think, is indicating his own dark wood experience, now coming out of it, recognizing, Lord, I need you. I need you to reorient me again. So this is where he goes into the next verse, next verses. And I love this in verses 4 through 5. And you can see a kind of pattern that's going on here. O God, in you I trust, let me not be put to shame. Don't let my enemies exult over me. None who wait for you shall ever be put to shame. They'll not, those who will be ashamed are those who are wantonly treacherous. And then there's a shift here, a pivot in verses 4 through 5. Lead, guide, and teach. Lead me, guide me, and teach me. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. The way of God, wanting to walk in his way, walking to, wanting to walk in the, and the psalmist is going to use this language, the ancient path, the path that he's laid out for us from before. One of the great gifts that I think our particular tradition, the kind of Reformational Anglican tradition that we have, are the homilies that Thomas Cranmer left us so many years ago in the reign of King Edward VI. I, I commend you to read them again and again. There's a new edition, by the way, out of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer that IVP has just published. It's, it's, an, it's called an international edition of the Book of Common Prayer. I, I re, I've got it at the house. I like the Coverdale Psalms. Um, and some of these Edwardian sermons from Cranmer are stuck in the back, one on justification, one on good works. The one sermon of Cranmer's that I, that I find myself going to again and again because it's, it's straight from the lips of St. Augustine and straight from the lips of St. Paul is his, his homily on the Bible on reading Holy Scripture. And this is what Cranmer says. How do we avoid error when reading the Bible? And you can sense that this is, the, this is the heart of the psalmist here. Teach me your way. Let me walk in your path. I know that my own path will lead to a, to a, to a negative and a destructive end. I want to walk in your path where there is love and faithfulness everlasting. And Cranmer's answer to that, and he's taking this right from St. Augustine, is the person that avoids error in reading the Bible is not necessarily the most studious or the most learned. In fact, you know, I've been in the academic guild long enough to know that that, that can get you off track real fast. Right. The person who's in the position to be led in God's word in the right way is the person of Psalm 25's character. Humble, yearning to be instructed. Here's the hard thing. It's a hard pill for me to swallow with a heart that says, what you show me there, I want to do. What you teach me there, I, I want to believe. Um, what you paint a picture of there, I want to pray that. 
I want that. That's the heart of the reader of the Bible. Think about this, that the Bible itself anticipates. Have you ever thought in those terms? The Bible anticipates a particular kind of reader. Who are those that are going to buy these leather-bound things and read them? The Bible anticipates Psalm 25 kind of people who open this word and say, I want to do and I want to yield to what it says. And here's, here's the next line in that that I will admit is a hard pill to swallow. And it's this. In a confession and a belief that what God says here in his word is better than anything that we can contrive on our own. Anything that we can say on our own. To believe that what God says here is better and right. And by the way, it doesn't mean that the Bible's better literature. Um, I mean, I joke with my students at Beeson, you know, Psalm 23 in the King James Version, the translation of Psalm 23 and that Elizabethan English is about as beautiful and sonorous a thing that we have in the English language. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then I'll kind of play with them. I said, let me, let me read it to you in Hebrew. And it sounds like you're getting shot with a machine gun of words. I mean, this is, I mean, this, this is a real challenge. What, what do we do when the English translation is better? I mean, it's, it's better, at least on our reading, than the actual thing itself. I mean, that's a challenge. So I'm not claiming here that the Bible is necessarily the best literature ever written, although it's remarkable in many ways. We're claiming something as an article of faith about the promises that God himself attaches to these words. I want to be instructed in them. I want to be taught your way. I want to be led in your truth. Well, where do we go to do that? We go to the scriptures themselves. Jesus left us a pattern of that. Paul left us a pattern of that. Isaiah the prophet left us a pattern of that. It's as if the prophets and it's as if the apostles can't speak without speaking in terms of that which they have already been given in the Scriptures. I can't read Paul without the Old Testament really nearby. Because at every turn, Paul is trying to think in scriptural terms on the basis of that which has been already given to him. So do you see, the, this is a beautiful progression here. I lift my soul to you, O Lord. I put my trust in you. I am waiting for you in confidence. Um, and that's a term... Those are terms we're talking about. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? There's a kind of restless energy in this, in this Hebrew term here of waiting. A waiting in a kind of restless, energetic way, knowing that his promises are true, but they haven't necessarily been actualized yet. I'm in that place of waiting. And I'm not waiting, and I love this, in, in all the Psalms, you, you test me on this. The psalmist never says, I'm waiting for my situation to resolve itself. I'm waiting for the pile of bricks to fall on my enemy. And then I'll get up tomorrow morning and feel a little bit better about things. That, that is never the language of the Psalms. The waiting's object is always the Lord himself. I wait on the Lord. And then what's the result of that? I want to be taught. And then you keep moving on here. Oh, uh, yeah, verses 6 through 7. And I love this. It's kind of a tsunami building here. So I'm lifting my soul to you. I'm trusting in you. I'm waiting on you. I know what the waiting is going to look like. It's going to look like the Lord himself teaching me his paths, teaching me his truth. I'm waiting on him. And then verses six through seven, here's, here's covenantal language. Remember your mercy, O Lord. Remember your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. So 
Do you hear where the psalmist moves here? Remember your mercy. Remember your steadfast love. Don't remember my sins. <laughs> That's covenantal language. And we all know this, don't we? God doesn't forget. You know, when, when God says in the book of Genesis, you know, Noah's out there on the, on the sea and the flood is there, and, and then the next verse says, and God remembered Noah. I mean, ne- never read some, of course you don't, right? But we're not reading that like, oh, something's, something's bothering me here. What, what is that? Oh, Noah, it's that whole crew, is, I forgot about them out there. It's not, that's not at all the language of the Bible at all, as, or at least the substance of it. Remembering that term there is a covenantal term. It's God is about to move and actualize his saving promises for his people. He's about to do it. Um, I, I have students every once in a while that want to get Hebrew tattoos. I don't encourage it. Um, I do tell them when I'm looking, and I see this regularly in my classes now, where some student will have Greek, something from the, like the Kaiosune Su, you know, like your righteousness. I mean, they'll have some Greeky thing on their arm. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell them in front of the whole class, if, you, if you're going to have New Testament here, by the end of the year, some Hebrew better be here. Like, we're going we're to need to balance this thing out. Um, so if, if, well, I tell them, like, if you're looking for a Hebrew word, you want a kind of a, a really kind of meaty, theological, simple Hebrew word, how about the Hebrew word zakar? Actually, we know a gal, Naomi and I know a gal, that got zakar uh, tattooed on her inside of her wrist. Um, to remember. It's at the very heart of, the, of your entire future hope. This is why the psalmist could say in the verses previous to this, I'm trusting in you. I'm going to wait on you. Why can he trust and wait on the Lord? Because he knows that the Lord will remember. And think about it in, this terms, in these terms. I'll put it in kind of robustly theological language. God cannot forget himself. It's the very essence of God's being is to be. I am who I am, he told Moses from the burning bush. I subsist in my very being. I need nothing external to myself to make myself fulfilled. I am. That's the very being of God. So for God to remember his mercy and to remember his goodness is not for God to remember just an attribute of himself that he gives to others, extends to others. It's for God to remember his very self. He is mercy. He is goodness. So it's that confidence of God's very being and that God will remember himself and extend that remembrance to his people that fills the psalmist here in the middle of his difficulty with confidence and hope. I'm going to trust in the Lord. I'm going to wait on him. I'm going to search his word. I want to be taught by him. And I know that he will remember his steadfast love and his faithfulness to us. I had a friend of mine. What's our time, brother? Uh, oh. I'm done right after this. <laughs> I have a friend of mine um, from college, and I, I'm not a, I, I don't do social media, um, no, no Facebook, no Insta, nothing. Um, and I think that may have lent itself to some sanity, but I'll, you, you choose your own thing on all that. Um, but I have a friend, so my point is, I don't really keep up with a lot of my friends from college. I mean, I wish I did, but I just, I don't. But there's one who's a friend of mine, a pastor in Greenville, South Carolina, and we'll text every once in a while. 
And he sent me this text from a Puritan, uh, Thomas Goodwin, that I, I've just gone to it again and again. And I think it flows from the material content of, of these verses here, 6 and 7. Remember your steadfast love. Remember your faithfulness, knowing that the Lord is compassionate to his children. He loves his children. It's the heart of a shepherd for his sheep. There's, in other words, the, the refuge that we take in him is a refuge that's warm and open, a gentle embrace. And this is the quote that my friend sent to me from Thomas Goodwin. I, let's see if I can read what I wrote. That which keeps people off, in other words, away from the Lord, is that they know not Christ's mind and heart. The truth is, he is more glad of us than we can be of him. Therefore, come to him. If you knew his heart, you would. I want to read it one more time. That which keeps people off from the Lord or at a distance is that they don't really know Christ's mind and his heart. The truth is he is more glad of us than we can be of him. Therefore, come to him. If you knew his heart, you would. Lord, thank you for these verses in Psalm 25 that teach us about your character. That you don't just do good things, O Lord. You are the very essence of goodness itself. You don't just do merciful things, O Lord. You are mercy. And you are justice. And we find ourselves, Lord, drawn to you, even in the middle of our own moment, as Christians, as a church, knowing, O Lord, that we need to put our trust and our confidence in you, that we need to be taught by you, and that, Lord, the end result of this should be humble and penitent hearts that turn toward you and toward one another in acts of love and kindness and forgiveness in the hope and the remembrance that you, O Lord, are merciful and you are loving. Lord, let us trust your heart. Let us have the courage to turn to you, knowing, O Lord Jesus, that you love us more than we could ever know. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at Advent Birmingham.